Hi there, welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Jamie Geller. She is an American-Israeli, award-winning TV producer, celebrity chef, businesswoman, and most recently, the new chief media and marketing officer at Aish. She is also a best-selling author of eight cookbooks and the founder of Kosher Network International. Enjoy my conversation with Jamie Geller. Jamie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. You and I have had several conversations privately over the last few years, basically since I launched Izzy. I think that's the first time we got into contact and then, you know, always looking for different ways to work together. And, you know, it's one of those things where if you try hard enough, if you persist, it'll come to life. And I think that's our story. But before we get into, you know, what you're up to today and all that good stuff, why don't you take us back to the early beginnings, you know, where you came from, everything that led to where you are today. How long do we have? <laughs> um, I'm from Philadelphia, um, and I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia, a very nice sort of conservative, traditional Jewish background. I marched in the Israeli Day Parade every year, learned how to speak Hebrew in school from Israeli teachers who were living in the States at the time, and um, just really had a really strong sense of Jewish identity. And I think I headed to uh, NYU, to New York City, and for the first time got out of that really nice Jewish suburban bubble and was sort of exposed to the world for the first time. And that was a tremendous experience being in the Big Apple and all that that entails. And um, I, that was sort of like the beginning. I don't know how far deep you want to go. I'm happy for you to <laughs> ask questions, but that's like the, the beginning without you know divulging my... Uh, birth year and my weight I think you basically have the basics <laughs> yeah no so keep going though because I think you know everything that led up to where you are today keep, keep the story going to get to today okay fine um so I uh I um I very much wanted to be I've told I've said spoke about this publicly before my parents were married and they were divorced and then they married each other again and then they had my sister and I so we're actually products of the second marriage of the same people to each other and um, during the course of even when they were married for the second time, they used to get separated a lot. My father would move in and out of the house. Um, they're divorced again for the second time now, but I just felt like definitely in terms of um, that aspect of my childhood, that part was unstable. And I always was searching for, you know, what would be this perfect, amazing, wonderful life. And I really thought I had a dream that I wanted to be famous. I thought celebrities just had it all. They looked great and um, their life seemed perfect. And that's really what I wanted to do. So I really head to New York um, to really pursue a potential career of being famous. Um, the question was with what and how? I'm not an actor, I'm not a singer. And um, I was just thinking like, how could I make this idea and this dream work for myself? And I thought about becoming a journalist. I felt like that's a subject matter you could study in school and you know learn and it's a trade you could pick up and then journalists were famous in their own right at the time oprah i grew up with my mom watching oprah like every single day when i came home from school she loved barbara walters like these are diane sawyer these were women that i thought like i was so impressed with their presence on screen and on stage and how they were able to really interview the most interesting people in the world they were able to interview celebrities and be celebrities in their own right so i pursued a career in journalism and uh, Syracuse and Northwestern are known for their journalism programs, but I picked NYU because I thought that the opportunities, internship opportunities and job opportunities would be like no other place. And that was the truth, that's what it was. Um, my 
first summer after freshman year, I got an internship at CNN. I got an internship for a show called Showbiz Today, which was like the Entertainment Tonight or the Extra or the Access Hollywood of CNN. They covered international news uh, globally, internationally for CNN. So I started there and it was such an unbelievable summer experience that I stayed on. And I worked um, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, my classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I went straight through for the next two years working during the week and full during the year, like that part-time and then full-time in the summers. I graduated in three years um, because I was offered a job there to be a producer. And that's when I started my career. And I started, I went to the MTV Music Awards, the VH1 Fashion Awards, the Daytime Emmys, the Oscars. I was flown all over the world to interview celebrities, be on red carpets, behind the scenes. And I just feel like I'm talking so much, but that was the beginning of my professional career, so. So how do you go from that aspect of your career, that phase of your career to becoming, you know, I think you were an influencer before they used the term influencer. So how did that transition take place? First of all, we're going to talk about this, I'm sure, but the term influencer, I hate. Then there was the term before that that was blogger. I was never a blogger. Like, I hate that, those terms also. It's so hard, you know, to think about yourself um, with the definition of one word that just is a new word. You know, it's never, ever how I imagined myself. But um, I got married. And I, while I was also pursuing this wonderful career being in the city, it's like really, really, really an intense rat race. The truth is, I always say like at my work, they would go to the bathroom for you if they could. All you'd have to do is just keep working, don't stop. Don't think about your life, don't think about your personal health, your mental health, your relationships. There's no room for that, anything else other than work. And when I kind of saw that that was the case in the career that I had chosen, and at that point I was at HBO and I was I was working on shows like The Sopranos, uh, Sex in the City, Mind of the Night Man, Entourage, uh, Janet Jackson concert, Madonna concert, boxing matches, Floyd Merriweather, like, I just, Mayweather, uh, I just, um, I felt like I wanted more in my life. And so I had at the time started going to some like uh, Torah classes. They're like more, it was like a Jewish single scene. My mom wanted to make sure that I married a nice Jewish guy because now that I wasn't like in this perfect Jewish bubble, uh, <laughs> she wanted to make sure I didn't meet the marry the wrong guy, you know, at the after party for the Oscars. So I went for that and I was actually, they would share the weekly Torah portion. Um, just some Jewish wisdom that was relevant to your life today that was happening in the weekly portion. And I never really thought, I grew up Jewishly, um, but I never really thought that, I would say maybe Judaism punctuated my life, but it didn't permeate my life. I never really thought of it as like integrated into what I do. It's just something I do, oh, now it's a holiday. So now we do that. And then I go back to living my life. And I really felt like these classes were so inspiring and they gave me just such great insights and wisdom for how to behave as a human, as a person, as a as a human being on this earth, as a daughter, as a sister, like in my interpersonal relationships. And I had a real desire to start my own family. And so uh, at that point I had become Shomer Shabbos. I started keeping the Sabbath um, and living like a more Orthodox Jewish lifestyle. And so I went through matchmakers to on blind dates to meet my husband. I dated over 50 guys. And, um, and I was like the one date wonder, nothing was really working out. And then I met my husband and two weeks later, we got engaged. Two months later, I got married. My first book was called Quick and Kosher. And I always say, that's not just the name of my book. It's a recipe for my entire life. So I got married. We had um, three kids in three, like when my oldest was two and a half, we already had three kids. Five years later, we had five kids. Um, now thank God we have six kids, age seven to 17. And, um, I just felt like 
I didn't want to be in TV anymore. I didn't feel like that life was conducive to family life, like as I discussed before. Um, and so I went on maternity leave and they offered me with my first, they offered me everything to come back, a promotion to executive producer. HBO offered me a four day work week so that I wouldn't have to work on Arab Shabbos, which is the day, you know, the hours, the eve of Sabbath. So like, okay, I could get home in time and cook for my family. Like, I look these Irish American bosses, like I don't think they ever heard of this, but they were like, whatever it takes, you know, I had proven myself professionally and they were willing to accommodate. Um, but I just, I didn't feel like it was worth working 20 hour days, the other, you know, four days out of the week. And I didn't want to sacrifice all of that. And so I wrote a book on my maternity leave, like I said, called Quick and Kosher, Recipes from the Bride Who Knew Nothing. And I started telling my story of what it was like to be married, uh, religiously Jewish, uh, experiencing so many firsts. And then I was like, oh yeah, it's a cookbook, so I need recipes. So I put some quick and simple, easy recipes in there that I had learned on the job. Because when I got married, I didn't know the difference between a spatula and a saucepan, and I didn't care at all. Um, but the story, it was blogging before blogging. And it was sharing parts of my life before social media, before we overshared everything. It was sharing the parts that I felt like maybe people would resonate with people and they could identify with, new brides, new mothers, um, people experiencing becoming uh, changes in their life and how to, how to manage that, how to not be good at something and figure it out as you go along. And that's where I think maybe what you're referring to with the influence came from. So lot to unpack there. I mean, I think the first thing that I wanna ask is matchmaking gets a bad rap in the Jewish world. I mean, in general, it gets a bad rap, but especially in the Jewish world, there's a lot of stigmas and misconceptions probably about it. And I'm just curious if you could shed some light into that process for us and maybe debunk some of the misconceptions and the myths and the stigmas that we often hear about that aspect of Orthodox Jewish world. Sure. I, that's a great question. I'm excited you asked about that. Um, I always say matchmaker, matchmaker is not just a song and fiddler on the roof. It's an actual real profession. So much so that some people are actually paid for it. Um, <clears throat> they're paid upon success. But but unofficially, everyone who is basically a Jewish mother is looking to be a matchmaker just to help people out, not to get paid, not to get you know any benefit. But I think that we all, I'm in the middle of like working on three or four different potential matches right now. We all just want everyone, we know that that's part of the Jewish life cycle to get married, to have kids, that they, they experience bris, bar mitzvah, wedding, a Jewish wedding. And then, you know, we, and we do the whole thing over again. That's the continuity of the Jewish people. So to the extent that we can help our children and our singles and their friends find each other. I mean, finding your soulmate, there's a concept of a shirt, which means your soulmate and finding them amongst, I mean, I know it sounds like there are not a lot of Jewish people in the world, but 15 million, it's a lot of people to go through to find the one. And so to the extent that your friends, neighbors, colleagues, friends, friends, mother's friends can help you, like we're all so into it. Now, in terms of Orthodox Judaism, um, obviously there are different strains, meaning you have Hasidic Judaism, you have modern Orthodox, everything in between, you have traditional. So I definitely know the movies portray it as like, oh, you get to meet once and then you decide, or you don't even get to decide, like your parents have decided for you and you just meet once. So there obviously are always scenarios and exceptions to the rule, but in um, I'm Orthodox and 
I, my children and the way that I match, like I got to go to matchmakers myself, tell them a little bit about myself. You even have a resume. It wasn't common in my day, but now it's common. People have actually a resume where they just talk a little bit about themselves, a personal resume and what they're looking for and what's important to them. And the resume is more sort of just, it's like an, it's a side thing, but the matchmaker or the person wants to set you up either knows you well or wants to get to know you and thinks about people that they think would be a great match. Like, you know, I would think of anyone for a friend of mine, like you, how many friends before I sent two friends on a blind date, they're married now with three kids. Like, it's just, you're thinking, oh, I know this person would get to go along so well with this person. And you just have this desire for them to, to meet each other. Um, in the Orthodox world, you date, often you date in public places. Um, so you'll see a lot of dates. If you ever go to like the Waldorf Astoria in Jerusalem or the Hilton Hotel in Tel Aviv or any like major hotel lobby, um, you'll see them dating um, because the idea is that they should go to a place, um, they shouldn't have opportunities to be intimate prior to being married. So things you could keep things a little bit more controlled in a public environment and you, they, get, they talk to each other. The dates are hours long and they have as many dates as they want until they'd want to get engaged. Um, often after a few dates, if it just seems like things are not progressing, then it's like, okay, I like you, you're a nice person, but we're dating for marriage now. It's something called a Yibor Tachlis. We're dating for a purpose. So as much as I like your company, we're not going to let this schlep on for years. You know, we're going to move on to the next because if we don't feel like, you know, this is it and we're aligned and you're my soulmate, we're not going to get married. Um, but it's not forced marriages and the weddings are unbelievable. I mean, if you ever been to an Orthodox wedding, it's the most joyous occasion. I remember when my colleagues from HBO came, they thought the floor was going to like break with the amount of people and dancing and joy uh, and the joy that was expressed. And I can go into some of the other details about that, but it's wonderful. I think it's an amazing official and unofficial service that most Jewish men and women engage in to try to help our singles uh, find their, their matches. You know, your story of basically, as they call it in Hebrew, uh, to become religious or to become more spiritual, whatever word you want to use, you know, I think is interesting because there's, you know, outside of just the matchmaking aspect, I mean, there's a lot of negativity and I would say ill thinking around the Orthodox Jewish community we don't we don't get any help I mean I'm not part of the Orthodox Jewish community so maybe I should say you guys don't get any help from places like Netflix and your former employers like HBO which portray the Orthodox Jewish communities as you know weird or outlandish communities and I think that's very unfortunate because I do have the opportunity to speak with people like you and others in, in these communities. And I, I'm very inspired by, by you and, and your counterparts, so to speak. I'm curious to know, what's one thing you thought about being an Orthodox Jew before you became one that you have since learned is either completely untrue or just very different from what you originally thought? So you have like the best questions. I thought that women were very oppressed. Um, like I said, I did not grow up like this. And from as an outsider looking in, I thought it was like a man's world. And it was all about the men. And the women were secondary and they were homemakers. And there's a Yiddish word called balabusta, which is essentially like um, you're barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. You know, like that's your job and that's your place. And as I was becoming more interested in an observant lifestyle, I spent a lot of uh, Shabbatot or Shabbosim with religious families. And I saw quite the opposite. The families that I went to, the relationships between the husband and wives, that to me, as, as I shared my personal story of my parents, 
we're so beautiful. And that's not to say this is above the board, we're normal people. Obviously there's issues in every, um, <laughs> with everyone, but overwhelmingly re mutual respect, a beautiful way that they spoke to each other. My parents were immigrants from Transylvania to Pennsylvania in the sixties. I don't know if it's an Eastern European thing or what, but like they just scream. And I remember one time when I was like young, I said like, why are you screaming? You know, like they scream in Hungarian, they scream in Romanian, they scream in English. They're like, oh, we're not screaming. This is just how we talk. Like it's a very like, <laughs> so just the way of communication, the way husbands and wives, the way they respected each other, the focus and the emphasis on their relationship and on the family life. And during the Friday night um, meal, the meal starts by singing a song called Eshet Chayal, which means like the, the, my glorious wife and husband and the boys all sing to the mother. I was like, wow, this is like so crazy. The woman is celebrated in a way that I never imagined. And I think now you see women who are Orthodox, who cover their hair, who look the part or dress the part, but hold really prominent positions uh, career-wise, <clears throat> in government, in the world. And I, I think that that's like, it was such a misconception for me that they could be attorneys, um, doctors, and unbelievable, extraordinary professionals in their career and celebrated for that while still living this observant lifestyle. Um, I feel like what you're doing with Izzy creates an unbelievable opportunity to share these stories authentically. Um, obviously, HBO and Netflix, they're sensationalized. They wouldn't be good if they're not sensationalized, you know? Like, remember, these are dramas. These are, they're like a lot of them are, and even the reality shows, is the Kardashian really, Kardashians really a reality show? I mean, they had to create an orthodox version of that to keep up with the Kardashians. So I wouldn't believe the hyper realities or the sensational dramatizations of the world. It's there for entertainment and they're entertaining. It's a, it's a great point, obviously, but I wanna go back to what you said a few minutes ago about, you know, being a professional in the Orthodox Jewish world for women, especially. And you are the quintessential professional. I mean, you are an entrepreneur. You talked about your television career, food writer, chef, celebrity chef. I mean, you've really done so many great things in your, what I would still call a young career. You. And now more recently, you became the chief media and marketing officer at H Global, which really caught me by surprise. So I just would love for you to tell us why you made that transition. Right. Um, there's so many reasons why. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the present and then I'll go backward. First of all, it's really, really an honor to me to be on the leadership team uh, as the first woman that was elected. Aish is an organization that's been around for about 47, going on 48 years. So 50 years. It was um, started by Rabbi Noah Weinberg was the founder. And then of course it's expanded to be a global organization with branches in over a hundred cities. And the goal is to really teach and engage Jewish people with Jewish wisdom and give them the power of knowledge and to know why it is that we do what we do. And it was run by a number of rabbis and that has changed in the last few years. And it's unbelievable um, for an organization like this with this level of history to bring a woman on board. And since I joined a year and a half ago, we brought three other women into prominent positions on the leadership team and on the executive team as directors of departments that didn't even exist before that were created because the women were so confident and the departments were needed. And we're building the depart certain departments from the ground up, communications, public affairs, HR, marketing, media. And so it's wonderful to be celebrated as a woman in this way within the Orthodox world. You know, there's so many hurdles. So there's the hurdle of, um, being, uh, having the opportunity to represent the Orthodox people as producer at HBO, like in the secular world. And then also within the Orthodox world, 
So for them to sort of wake up and get with the times and to really celebrate women in this way and put them in positions of power. So that's really, really, really special. Um, I made this move. I appreciate uh, that you say that it's a young career. In many ways, I feel like I have so much more that I wanna do and wanna accomplish, um, but obviously 20 plus years doing different things and ending up somehow, like you said, in this weird place of after everything that I've done and accomplished to be called like an influencer, I just like was insulted. I'm like, what is this, you know, why? And um, digital media and social media has changed so much. It's like at the speed of light, it's changing. And now sort of the power lies with the influencer and the power lies in the influencer that's willing to reveal as much as possible about their personal life. And we spoke about this. It's the oversharing, the dramatization, the, the um, I always say social is about making a mountain out of a molehill. It's like creating controversy. And the more that you share and the more that you reveal, the more that there's these words flying around of being authentic, authentic to a point, you know? But like people, the more you share, the more you give and the more you expose about your life and your relationships and those that you love and yourself, so the more popular you are. And I started to see that trend happening in digital media and social media. There are a lot, a lot of studies about what social media does to those that consume it but not enough about what it does to those that create it. And the content creators are suffering so much themselves with their relevancy, that being felt, feeling legitimate, um, actually um, just their mental health. And I hated that place to just get out of that rat race. I guess it's very synonymous with what happened before. I wanted to get out of the rat race of what was New York and live a more, a lifestyle with more meaning. And here the same thing happened even professionally. It wasn't enough for me now that um, per personally, I left this, lead this lifestyle of meaning and spirituality, but professionally I do what I gotta do. I wanted my personal and professional lives to align. And so now I felt professionally, I wanted to do more and be more. I wanted to be part of something that had global impact. I wanted to um, do something that didn't rely, it wasn't about me and myself and wasn't reliant on me putting myself out there for numbers, for viewers, for advertising dollars. And, but I wanted to leverage everything I learned. So my experience in branding and marketing and media and production and publication of digital media and all of that new media, old, you know, traditional media, new media rolled up into this new position as chief media marketing officer for H. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I want to touch a little bit more on this, this idea of mental health from the content creator standpoint, because as you said, it doesn't get talked, enough, talked about enough uh, for different reasons. And I just, you know, to the extent that you feel comfortable sharing a little bit into your personal life, I mean, if you could just share with us um, what you were experiencing as a content creator. The reason I ask is, is not necessarily to hone in on you, but just so people can understand, you know, what's really going on in the mind and in the lives of a content creator uh, as it pertains to mental health and obviously has mental health has effects on physical health and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the numbers mean everything. And everyone will tell you they don't, but you can't help it. And it's, the, and it's the truth. You're literally now suddenly defined your relevancy, your legitimacy, your likability, literally defined by how many people decide to tap a heart. It's like the craziest thing. And then how many people decide to follow you and watching the numbers go up and down or, or not moving and incessantly checking that is so it's so damaging, it's so damaging. When have we ever, our, our, our actions should be based on our interpersonal, like real connections with people. But this is, everything that you do becomes driven by what the numbers. 
And even though if you love talking about this or you have an expertise in this, but the numbers show that, but that, that something else is what people engage with the most. So, so then you do that. So I'll give you some concrete examples. So um, this book that I wrote, which is really an autobiographical cookbook. So then I got, became known for like quick, simple, easy recipes for people that don't know how to cook, don't like to cook, don't have time to cook. So when I went to social media and I made that move to those platforms, obviously we're gonna share recipes. And every once in a while, like I was um, on the Today Show, I would get invited on during the Jewish holidays. It was wonderful to represent the Jewish people at that time and to be on this like major national show cooking a brisket for Passover. Um, and so I'd show a picture of us like behind the scenes, you know, with the hosts getting ready to, uh, to uh, make this dish. But every time I showed a picture of myself, it was liked 200% more and engaged with 200% more than if I shared a recipe. So then of course your team is like, well, you have to share, share more of yourself, you know? And then if I would share like at a certain time with a milestone, a bar mitzvah, you know, people are following you. So they love to celebrate those, those moments with you. So I show a bar mitzvah picture like with my family or with my son at the Kotel at the Western Wall. That would be liked 400% more than a food, you know, <laughs> than a recipe. So then it's suddenly like, okay, so is this the Jamie show or am I, am I sharing recipes with people? And then on and on that would go. And then stories came into being when Instagram, you know, tried to copy Snapchat when Facebook was not able to purchase Snapchat. So then it was like, you had to do, not enough that you could share one curated photo of yourself or maybe a video. That's fine. It's, it's wonderful. I love sharing a little bit of, I love connecting with people. So obviously it's a scale that you do that online. I love sharing a little bit, but then it was like, okay, how every minute of every day and like the experience didn't matter if I didn't story it. And the person I met didn't exist if I didn't put them on my social. And it was like all these crazy um, hyper reality of living life from behind your phone. And I remember like being at things for my kids. I was like, I have to show my kid graduating kindergarten. You know, everyone is so excited to see that. It's like, how am I living this moment from behind my phone? I'm presently there, but I'm not there. There's this thing in between me and watching my kid have a milestone. And I just, I just couldn't come to terms with that anymore. And I started not taking my phone out, you know, not bringing it with me, you know, or having it like, you know, in my purse, but not taking it out and not wanting to live my life in that way. So those are just some of the experiences. And, and literally, by the way, like, like feeling like I'm worthless and nothing. If something that I thought would be great or that people would love, whether it was an article or whether it was a picture was suddenly not engaged with. And Forget about the numbers staying stagnant and not going up. What about if your followers count go down, follower counts go down? Then it's like, you're less than nothing. And it's a crazy place to be. Absolutely. You know, is that something that when you look back, like how long did it take you to realize that? Because that's a really hard place to be when on one hand you're running this business, which is obviously, you know, helping you support your family, your kids, your lifestyle, et cetera. You move to Israel, which is not easy to do with your family. You have six kids, which is not a small number. So, I mean, there's this like business aspect. But then, as you also say, that the business now comes into your personal life and starts affecting your mood, your mental health. Your phone is literally in the way of you enjoying moments and experiences with your family and other people. Like, when did you realize that this was starting to become... Uh, instead of a virtuous cycle, a vicious cycle? Or was it just very incremental and, and sort of just you know, one thing after the next until the straw broke the camel's back. Like how, how did you come to this? I think it's like phases. First, you're on a high because you cannot believe how much power you have. 
and I, I feel like content creators like become monsters. It's a terrible thing. Like you suddenly being humble, they say Moses, Moshe was the greatest Jew ever. Why? The number one character trait that he has that we celebrate is how humble he was. And being an influencer or being somehow on social media is the opposite of all of that. You suddenly become sort of hungry with and hungry for the power and the influence that you wield. And initially it's intoxicating and it's addicting. You know, social media is addicting for those that are on it, but it's also addicting for those that are creating it. And it's like, it's an unbelievable power. So first you think you're amazing. And then you have this like warped sense of self and standing in this world. And how you, you are better than everyone else because first of all, you're on social. And then all of those on social, you're better than all of the ones who have fewer followers than you. You know, so that's like the first phase. It's just this like haughtiness that's, that's horrific, horrific to be around and like, you know, me and my followers and you own them and, and people should interact, like, you know, should use you to communicate their messaging, whether it's brands or advertisers, because your followers will do what they say and what that means to wield that influence. That's the first, the first phase of like that haughtiness and that warped sense of self and, and uh, self-righteousness and sort of a standing in the world and community. Then when the numbers don't go your way, because inevitably things change and even the most unbelievable content creators with the cult followings, you know, are subject to the weirdo algorithms that, you know, and that come out. And it's like, suddenly like people, you could be having, you know, a thousand likes. And then like for a few weeks, you'll have 200 because like the algorithms are, are changing and they're favoring different formats or they want to push video and you were more doing, you know, photography. So now you have to become the video content creator, et cetera. And then you go into this depression. And for me, the depression was like, it, it was like a good year or two that I was like, how can I keep up with this? And first you don't feel, you feel that terrible sense of, not, like I said, like just no self-worth and no self-confidence. And it affects your relationships, obviously we know, and, the, and, your, and your moods. And um, it affects you thinking that you're even good at what you do and suddenly you get this weird imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome happens when you're high up, but it also happens when you're down low, because then it's really true. It's really true that you're not good at what you do, you know, if not everyone loves it and celebrates it or if another cool style comes in and your style's older or, you know, you're not adapting. Um, and so, uh, and then what you do is you go on, on social and you start sharing that with people. How like, you know, you know, please like my stuff and what is it that you want me to do and how can I change and how can I better serve you? And you start trying to like weirdly get this feedback and cater to what, what your followers want to need to, you know, to sort of legitimize your existence and keep you relevant. And for me, it was a long time. I was obviously leading a religious lifestyle at the time. So I would pray to God and I would say to him every day, I pray every day and I would say, okay, I'm here. I didn't mean to get here. I didn't set out. Now it's like an actual career being an influencer, you know? And like, you know, people set out with that goal in mind. Obviously no one knows what they're getting into, but full well, like it's a legitimate career. But I ended up here weirdly. Like I ended up because I had a cookbook and then I went on tour and then we created a website. And once you have a website, it's at a Facebook page. Once you had a Facebook page, Instagram, blah, 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 you know, like a YouTube channel. But I didn't start here. And so I said, okay, please God, I'm here now. For whatever reason, this is a platform that the advertisers care about. They no longer care so much about being on the site. They no longer care so much, you know. So I have to support my family, like you said. Um, my husband learns a half a day, like an Orthodox Jewish lifestyle. A lot of sometimes um, the women will work and the men won't, they'll be studying Torah. So he actually studies, you know, and learns um, throughout the day. So I'm like the sole provider. So I felt like I stayed there maybe longer than I should have because I justified that like, well, I'm the breadwinner. This is the career. This is what's supporting my family. For whatever reason, you've put me here, God. So help me figure out how to make it successful 
for the sake of those things. And I tried to do it for the right reasons, for the sake of supporting my family and my husband and learning Torah, as opposed to for the sake of celebrating myself. And then COVID came and I really feel like, and there were articles about this, so many people, it was a wake up call in terms of career change. And specifically for a lot of women, it was like, we had a chance to stop and think for the first time. Like I spoke about that rat race before, you never have a chance to stop and assess your life. And we had this moment and I said, I have to be doing something more different. This can't, I cannot stay on this train. I won't make it. I don't want it. And I don't actually feel like I'm having impact on the world in the way that I want to for the Jewish community and for the world. So that's what happened. I just want to say I really appreciate you sharing this because it's not uh, it's not obvious as they say in Hebrew, it's not something that we should take for granted. Uh, you sharing this with us, I know it's very personal, and I'm sure at the time it was incredibly difficult to you know juggle these these two very you know different sides of a dichotomy, right? I mean, on one hand, you had achieved what I believe is a tremendous amount of success, and you have a great family. And you make Aliyah with your family. And at the same time, you're battling this, you know, you use words like depression and other aspects of mental health that obviously were steering you in the wrong direction. And, you know, the fact that you had the wherewithal to recognize that a lot of people still are kind of in denial, I think, um, is powerful. And I'm really just grateful for you sharing that with us, Jamie. Um, I want to talk about Aish Global because Aish also gets a better app a lot. Um, when I was probably in my early 20s, I heard about Aish as like a cult uh, trying to brainwash people. And, you know, I didn't pay that much attention to it, but there was a story that existed in my life. And then I met somebody who introduced me to the wisdom of Rabbi Noah Weinberg, who you mentioned is the founder of Aish Global. And then I started reading about him and his wisdom. And I said, wait, Asia is not what somebody told me it was and I've since come to know from you from Rachel Moore your colleague from others that you know Asia is actually doing some really powerful work in the Jewish world can you just shed some more light on you know what Asia does and sort of your vision because I know you guys are really on this powerful strategic plan from what I've heard uh, to, to maximize the great work that has already been done right um, I love um, I love everything that we're talking about and I love that you brought this up um, Aish Vision 2030 is to get 3 million Jews to be learning Jewish wisdom and just to see that it's relevant to their life, period. As we say in Hebrew, nekuda, period. Um, and I do understand why you had the perception that you did and why that story is out there. Um, I think that we all care so much about Jewish continu continuity. I know, Josh, that is like a passion of yours. That is what you're doing with Izzy and with all of your projects, this podcast, your books, et cetera. And the question everyone is really trying, that's, that's what is, for all those that care about the Jewish people and think about the future of the Jewish people and the future of Jewish, that is what weighs on our hearts. That is what keeps us up at night. How do we pass this on to our children? How do we ensure Jewish continuity? And I think that we've all struggled with, well, what is the answer to that? So it definitely was 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you know, the, the, a real, real effort toward Jewish outreach by Aish and by many other organizations out there. And the thought was that le leading an observant lifestyle is what could really ensure, because we saw the fall off. I mean, the numbers showed that. Those that 
were born into observant life were more prone to, you know, at a way higher percentage point to continue that lifestyle. And those that were not observant, you know, there's intermarriage. And then by the next generation, you know, defining ourselves as Jews of no religion. 72% of the Jewish people in the global world jury define themselves as Jews of no religion. I'm saying the rest, the rest, right, are reform, orthodox, conservative, or pro-Israel. Pro-Israel is also a strong identity. But after that, you're talking 72% have no connection, not to Israel and not to any strain of Judaism. So that was the thought at that time. And so I think that that's why that rep, like, oh, you want to try to make me religious, you know? And like that, that's that feeling of that cult. And we spoke a lot about that before when we were just talking about misconceptions of matchmaking or women in the Orthodox world or Orthodoxy in general. Um, the Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Noah Feinberg passed away about 12, 13 years ago. It's a huge loss when the founder of an organization passes away. And Aish went through sort of a, <laughs> oh, like a sort of a coming to Moses moment, if you will. You know, what are we, what do we stand for? There are so many organizations out there these days that are trying to do outreach in that more traditional way. You know, Chabad, just like they try to stop you on the street and get you to put on tefillin, whether you're in the middle of the Shuk and Machane Yehuda or Brian Park across from HBO Studios on 23rd Street in Park Avenue. So um, what, what is it? Where is our unique impact going to be over the next decade? And also it was around COVID and we had just, again, lost our, our founder. And the thought was really, if 72% of the Jewish world is being ignored, they don't care about Judaism and they don't know why they should care, that really needs to be our focus. And getting people religious, getting people to take on a mitzvah, whether it's keeping Shabbat or, or putting on tefillin, that is not really the goal. We need to really start about helping educate people. They don't care because they don't know why they should care. I'm sure you've heard of Lori Palotnik. She's an amazing Aish educator. We spoke a lot about like, you know, let my people go at Passover time. We just passed Passover. Like everyone knows that's like Moses said, let my people go. It's really now about let my people know. They just need to know about Judaism. It's the power of knowledge. And that we believe really And the Rosh Hashiva, he's the spiritual leader of the organization. He's taken on, he was there when uh, Rabbi Noah Weinberg was there, but Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz is now taken on as a spiritual leader of the organization. And he said, that's the most important thing, a connection to Torah, to learning Jewish wisdom, and just, that's it. That's what, that's our goal. And so my job to come in here and rebrand the organization from everything that you said, you know, rebranding is not just a new logo, but it's really changing the perceptions of the organization worldwide and globally. And then also to think about what are the digital methods, the strategies and the content that we can put out there because there are good parts to digital and social media. And then for the first time, we actually can reach every Jew. Think about scalability. How would we reach 72% of the global Jewish population before if we didn't put up a, a brick and mortar center in every single city in, in the world, an, an insignificant city and town and village. So now through social, we can really almost connect to everyone. And how do we share Jewish wisdom in a palatable way that connects people to really understanding the whys of Judaism? And that's the goal. I love that. I, I'm also just curious to the extent that you can share a little peek behind the curtain of maybe some of the specific things that you guys are working on or planning to put into motion in terms of this, you know, let my people know way of communicating with the world, communicating with more Jews, their family, their friends, both Jewish and maybe even non-Jewish. What are some of the specifics that, that maybe you can share with us? Sure. Well, first of all, it does include creating um, a robust social footprint um, that, that is part. And that's why I feel like I thank God all the time that I had that experience 
you know, everything that I've done in my life has led up to this moment. So it doesn't have to be about me in front of the camera, but it could be leveraging, you know, the knowledge that I have. And so making sure, um, you know, when I first got here, it was like, oh, there wasn't even an Instagram account. Okay, so we got Instagram, we got Clubhouse. Okay, Clubhouse, okay, then we let that go when we saw the real ROIs out there. And, you know, this is sort of the trend, the trend, the sunset on that trend, um, relaunching our YouTube channel and getting on TikTok. Everyone's like, when I first got here, what do we need TikTok for? TikTok's not for us. And like, I always, I'm always about first mover advantage. You go there, you try, you, you put your sort of your stake, you set your uh, flag in the, in the in the ground and put your real estate claim out there. You know, test the water, see what happens. And if there's traction, you move. And I have to say, you know, I definitely thought that TikTok, for example, would be a space for like top of the funnel engagement, lighter entertaining content. And I thought it would just be a great place for a first touch point for people to get to know Asia, what we stand for. And as it turns out, we tested a little here and there with like sort of like 30 second or 15 second nuggets about Jewish wisdom, you know, and uh, Jewish identity, um, things that I that we think would spark really positive associations with Judaism, you know, and that is actually that content is more engaged with than the funny like content. So we're gonna be doing more of that substantive content on social and using social as a place, not just as the top of the funnel to drive people to h.com, which we're redesigning and relaunching right now as well, but really is a place where people may never leave that platform. We know that the, you know, the, uh, the algorithm gods are against us, but they don't want people to, to, you know, uh, to leave those the social platforms that they're interacting on. So actually putting great content on there. We're looking next year um, for a lot of, we started this year and next year uh, with more aggressively, a lot of excellent content creators. Um, you know, this is something we could probably talk about a lot. You know, does content have to be high production value or not? You know, a lot of the content that's doing really, really well right now is that lo-fi mobile first content. You know, I come from HBO, you, you know, when we spoke first spoke about Izzy, you know, we're thinking a lot about Netflix and we're thinking about these hundred million dollars, the crown and the this and the that. Do we need those hundred million dollar type of productions or can we get away with sort of, we're not funded in the same way. It's not an advertising model. Now we know that model is really challenged as well with what's going on with Netflix, but you know, what is the level of production value that's necessary for short form, long form content? Um, can we treat the YouTube channel, you know, like a content channel? Do we need real episodic series there? And we're looking for content creators to help us test different things. The only way we'll know is if we test. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's an interesting point because one of the things that I've been thinking about is what is the Jewish world look like in the world of virtual reality, which no one really knows when it's going to hit mainstream widespread, but it's going to hit. I think it's just a matter of, of when and, and, and maybe how. Um, have you thought about what, what VR, AR and the like is going to do to and with the Jewish world at all? So we've actually been working. We don't have success yet. We haven't launched it, but about six months in a virtual reality influencer. Um, for TikTok. So that's something that we've been wanting to try with. We've started in a few conversations about NFTs, um, but have not found our footing really there yet. We are thinking a lot about the metaverse and what that means, you know, for Aish. Um, you know, we're, we're sitting in this like unique space of we want to do things that are in brand and in line with Jewish wisdom, Jewish morals and Jewish values, but we don't want to be over the top Jewish to the point that then it wouldn't be engaged with with our target demographic. So it, it's not so simple and so easy. We don't wanna be on the nose Jewish, um, you know, with the content. So we've had to be more creative about what, what would our space in the metaverse look like? Uh, we've engaged with a lot of people who have done 
you know, award-winning um, writers and uh, producers in the Hollywood space who actually came through Aish. You know, they're, they're just like, I don't know, actually to tell you this part, but I went to Aish New York in New York when I was like at uh, NYU and HBO. So that was like, I was my, the start of my, you know, my um, um, move into the more of an Orthodox lifestyle. And we've got a number of sort of people who have been through Aish who are now have done amazing things in New York and Hollywood on Broadway. And we're all putting our minds together and trying to just get the best creators together and think about what does that space look like? So we started to think about it. We started to brainstorm. Um, always, you know, in a nonprofit, the innovation budget, it's like, oh, not there. You know, so it's like on the side, when you have extra time, which you never do, trying to have these collaborative forums for discussing what that space could be. So it's in the back of my mind for a year, year and a half um, and trying things slowly, but, you know, slowly. You talked about juggling, like being too Jewish with maybe not being Jewish enough. You know, can you just take us a little bit into that internal debate of, you know, not just where H lands, but where you land personally. And I think more, most importantly is what the audience wants. I mean, what, what are some of your findings, some of your insights say about that type of thing? So, um, when we look about what people are holding on to, uh, the last Pew study showed that, the, that those that are just the furthest, the most unengaged with their Judaism, and those that we are, you know, fearful of losing in the next generation, their last expressions of Judaism are two things: one is Holocaust remembrance, and the other is Jewish food. And they might define themselves if they just do one or the other or both. That like that is their expression of their Jewish identity. And we know that that's not enough to take them into um, the next, you know, to ensure the gen you know, continuity in the next generation of, Jew of Jewish, Jewish minded, uh, Jewishly, uh, positively identified Jewish people. So I think that we need to look at those points as sort of the last touch points. I, I don't know if you remember like two years ago around Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day in Israel, Eva's stories came out. Eva's Stories was this unbelievable social media campaign where they actually did a dramatization and reenacted. Well, Eva, like an Anne Frank, what if she was a girl in the Holocaust and social media existed at that time? What would that experience be? And we watched that experience through stories on social for a month leading up to the Holocaust. And it changed the next generation, right? Um, um, my grandparents are survivors of the Holocaust. My mother was part of a group that was called Ch Children of Survivors of the Holocaust because they actually had to meet together because the post-generational trauma was so, so intense that they were traumatized and they had a lot of issues because their parents were survivors. I'm a grandchild of survivors of the Holocaust and now I'm dealing with my kids who are great-great-grandchildren. So they needed to have a different touch point. I knew a survivor, they don't know my grandparents. I've spoken to them. They didn't have how many Holocaust survivors are left. There's a few of them are going on tour and speaking in the schools, but there's not enough. So we need to think about those last points of sort of cultural identification and how do we use media, digital media, social media and content to, you know, to use that as an inroad in. Food is obviously the easiest one for me. That's the experience I have. So that's, that's very easy for us to lean into. Um, but going ahead and identifying beyond Holocaust and beyond food, what are the areas of interest? Philosophy is a big one. As we spoke about mental health became a big conversation during COVID. So how do we use sort of philosophy and, and mental health and wellness as an inroad to Judaism. Give the Jewish take and Jewish wisdom on that and help attract people. So things like that.
So I think wisdom is the key word, right? And in, in the age of self-help and self-actualization and so on and so forth, you know, I feel that as I get into my deep Judaism journey, I, I find that there's so much in Jewish philosophy, in Jewish wisdom from ancient rabbis, from more mo modern rabbis like the late great Rabbi Noah Weinberg, you know, that that to me feels like a really interesting place because, you know, you make it about the individual. I think Judaism, not necessarily in a in a bad way, has always been about the community, about the we, not the me. And I think today with just the way of the world and, you know, democracies and capitalism and all that trends toward the age of the individual, I think a lot of individuals in the world, Jewish and non-Jewish, struggle to find themselves and see themselves in, in whatever they consider to be Judaism, whether it's religion, spirituality, history, nationhood, peoplehood, etc. And so that's just my personal opinion is like, how can we make Judaism a beacon of self-help? Um, and some of it is spiritual and some of it is religious. And for other people, it's very practical uh, and maybe career oriented or business oriented. And still for others, it's you know family and kids and uh, things that revolve around you know that sort of thing. Because um, to me, like that's in my, you know, on a business level with Jewel, I mean, I'm basically saying, listen, we have to have more people, Jewish and non-Jewish, see themselves in Judaism and, yes. and gain day-to-day -day value, not just infrequent value, right? Because we know, I mean, you mentioned it earlier that there's a lot of Jews that are very loosely affiliated with their Judaism. They celebrate a few holidays a year. You know, maybe they do a Shabbat dinner with a friend every now and again. Maybe they come to Israel once every few years, but it's very infrequent. In my By the way, that's that, good. That's good. <laughs> Where we're at, that's something to celebrate, just so you should know. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I also just feel that Judaism has all the makings of bringing day-to-day -day value, and if not day-to-day, -day, then week-to-week. -week. And yeah. the key there is whether it's day-to-day -day or week-to-week, that it's, that's frequent, that it's consistent. And I find that with any product, service, or experience in the world today, the best ones have that repeat engagement, that repeat ongoing engagement. I mean, you know that more than I do being a, I know you don't like this word, but being a former influencer, it's all about right. that repeat, consistent, ongoing engagement. And I think Judaism has really struggled with that in the last, you know, generation or two, because as you said, you know, our parents' generation was, was born just after the Holocaust and the founding of the state of Israel. And so that was a very core part of Jewish identity for a lot of people that didn't live in Israel, but were, you know, hearing about it from afar, waking up uh, certain periods and saying, we don't even know if Israel is going to exist tomorrow. Um, and then, you know, my and your generation basically grew up with a relatively strong Israel in the world, independent, tremendous army, uh, technology, and also an occupation on its hands. And so, you know, dealing with that and and maybe being told that israel is this you know this very special thing but then a lot of people growing up in western world and saying wait but i value human rights and i value universalism and you know humanity and being a citizen of the world so i just feel that the more that judaism can really speak to the individual and that the individual can derive that deep-seated value in whatever works for them in whatever place in their life they're at wherever they live in the world at any at any given time to me, like that's 
where we have a major opportunity. And then from there, you have branches like any tree. And people can, I think the more that people get into that sort of self-help version of Judaism, they'll explore other branches, they'll explore other opportunities, and they'll create relationships with entities, institutions, the state of Israel, and other Jews based on maybe that initial trunk of that wisdom. Just final thoughts from you on that. First of all, what you said is so perfect. I'm so glad we're recording this uh, because I want to I want to share it with everyone. Um, and I think it goes back to what I said before, <clears throat> where Judaism should permeate your life, not punctuate your life. And that's basically what you just said. And the idea, <clears throat> sorry, allergies. Um, the idea of Jewish wisdom is it's a guide for living. Experiential Judaism, like you said, going to a synagogue going to a Shabbat dinner, you know, that is what's been falling off a lot because people are having trouble finding those experiences that really resonate with where they're holding uniquely at any given time. Um, and, but that wisdom, if you know, it can guide you and it can help you be a better person. It's not just about tikkun olam, it's about yourself as well and, being a, and, and having your own personal impact on this world informed by your Jewish values, even understanding I don't know. I actually, we met with Mosaic, the CEO, uh, Mayor Holtz of Mosaic yesterday at Aish. And I'm, I hope I don't get this quote right. I think he said 78% of volunteers, volunteers in this world is done by Jews. 78%. And only 18% of those 78% are actually volunteering for a Jewish organization. So they don't even understand that this inherent need to give back to the world, which is what I did when I joined Aish, is because it's a Jewish value. If they would only know, you know, and that's, and that, and know and be proud of it and be proud that that's a Jewish value. And I think that that's our job. And I don't know if we could like, you know, recruit you to help and we could do this together because th th you're saying exactly what needs to be heard. Jamie, I want to thank you so much for not just taking the time, but being vulnerable with us, sharing your immense amount of insights and knowledge and your own wisdom. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you.